You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 73 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. McLeod is only a tiny player in the SMSF software market, but because they are so small, they have to do things differently because they just don't have the funds to operate like the big players, BGL, Class or Supermate. So out of necessity, they might come up with something different. I went to see Ashley Porter, the CEO and founder of McLeod, to find out where McLeod is heading. Ashley starts with an overview of where McLeod came from and what it is about, but then goes through their vision for 2020. McLeod's genesis was really my experience of unconscionable fees being charged to a trustee like my mum for administration. So we set about building an administration platform and a services marketplace that we felt would transform the industry and we've got quite a bit of momentum now. McLeod is a privately held company and so we do have a commercial model attached to the community even though our focus in terms of governance is, is the community. So we have multiple revenue streams. We have a license model, a freemium license model for the software. We have a transactional model, so we'll take 10% fee, like Airtasker or Upwork on marketplace transactions. So audits and actuary yep, certificates yep, or yep, accounting. Yep, yep, yep. So you might pay $330 for an audit and we'll take 30 That's very powerful because the marketplace then provides not just revenue but scalability. And scalability is key to this. Then you have product distribution. So if somebody buys an actuarial certificate, take a 10% chunk of that transaction. Wasn't that the marketplace? I thought the marketplace was audit and actuary certificates. And then the yeah. product, the certificate again? No. So you've got to distinguish between a service and a product that's integrated into the system. system. You might eventually have products that aren't integrated, that you just go into the marketplace and it's no longer a services marketplace, it's actually just a marketplace. And there might be things that are product that you purchase. That means at the moment you very much have the marketplace already up and going, but you don't really have products yet that are no. sold through a cloud. Yeah, no. So it's more the idea. Yeah. So you have advertising, so people using the community version see ads in the interface. Is that just Google Ads? Or? Yeah, it's just Google Ads. Um, you know, it's the same as what you would see in Hotmail and other interfaces. But of course... Once you upgrade, the ads disappear. It's not a particular focus for us. It's um, yes, but you know you need to. You have you need bills to make to pay. You need your bills to pay. We've moved technical support into the pro version because it was just becoming impractical, unrealistic. To charge for it separately. Well, a to charge for it separately, but also just becoming very clunky. Over time, what we would hope is that the support, the primary bulk of the support, is actually through the marketplace. Because if you're going to scale to hundreds of thousands of users, the idea that you can have a technical support function internally that scales, to me, just doesn't work. So one of the things about being a startup that's grossly undercapitalized and short of resources in every possible respect is that you think outside the box in terms of what is the solution to this problem. And for me, the solution to the problem is always going to be in the cloud or in the crowd. If it ends up being that the community scales and the community supports itself, that's fine. If that's what gives us scalability, that's the most important thing. If that model doesn't scale, the marketplace will because money will change hands. Either way, scalability has to be delivered because it's in the interest of the community for the community to, itself to scale.
So that's where you're now. And so yep. now comes your 2020 yep. vision. So what we did a few months ago is we started to see the community starting to grow and getting traction and we started to introduce revenue models that were generating revenues. We started to think, right, okay, our vision is to improve net returns for self-funded retirees by driving down the cost of administration. And if that's your vision, why wouldn't you seek to enable that vision for all funds? And if you're a software vendor, that's not really realistic because not every fund is going to need 185 data feeds and pay $250 for software. But if you have a, a flexible community-based model where the core software is free, even the paid version 70 to 90% less, and you have the scalability that's required in terms of your infrastructure, marketplace for operating model, all the aspects of the community. If you have all of that, then why wouldn't you envision all super funds being on the cloud. And, and the analogy I use in the document is Wikipedia's vision is to put all of this information, all of this knowledge in the hands of everybody, and they have a, a governance structure, a technology platform that enables that because the content is free, it's contributed by the crowd, it's no money changing hands. They have no doubt very scalable infrastructure because Wikipedia is the fifth most visited website on the planet, and I suspect they're Which also one's running the first? It'll be Google or Facebook. Oh, or, yeah, of course, um, Google. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But to be the fifth most visited website on the planet and have no balance sheet, to me, is a marker for the future. The fact that you can scale up something like Wikipedia with that vision has implications for all of us, really. So, so coming back to my point is if that's your vision to put that knowledge in everybody's hands and you have the infrastructure, you have the governance structure, you have the operating model to do that, then to seek anything less than 100% market share, so to speak, isn't consistent with your vision. And so McLeod is exactly the same. If your vision is to improve net retirement, uh, retirement outcomes for self-funded retirees and you have this model that is capable of getting there, then why wouldn't your target be 100%? And if you're a software vendor, that's just not realistic because you're competing with other software vendors, but McLeod isn't competing with software vendors. McLeod isn't competing with anybody. McLeod is collaborating with the trustee community, the practitioner community, the product providers, etc., to drive this outcome. And so what the document was about was we're not going to have 600,000 funds on McLeod in two and a half years' time. Nobody's kidding themselves. But what do we need to do as a community in the next two and a half years to lay the foundation that would allow whatever funds aren't yet on McLeod to move to McLeod. And so we went through a number of sort of elements of that in terms of the capital structure, the governance model, etc. And what came out of that was a few things. One is we need to make sure that the services marketplace scales and I think the community model for support sits alongside that. We've got the data layer to this point and it's quite advanced in terms of bank data, broker data, but we need direct integrations that can scale like Macquarie. We have direct integration with Macquarie. So you is know. direct integration better than through an information oh, broker? Oh, absolutely. Really? It, it's, it's because not... I thought the advantage of an information broker is also that the data comes in the same format for every bank. So if you directly integrate with mm -hmm. NAP and Commonwealth Bank, yep. you need to cater to each of their data specifications. But if yep. you come through an information yep. broker, you yep. just have one format of data. Yep. Technically, that's, that's true, but the open banking regime is going to impose a certain level of standardization on the anyway. entire process. It's all going to be API-based, and I suspect that they will end up all looking 
pretty much identical. But I agree that aggregators have an important role to play in terms of coverage. We went direct to Macquarie because a third of self-managed super funds have a CMA account. So if you want direct integration where it's appropriate to do so and third-party channels where it's not. How come that a third of SMSFs have a cash account with Macquarie? That's amazing. It is, uh, and I couldn't answer that question, but it's an impressive achievement, I have to say. Yes. There must be some metric, there must be some product feature there or some other aspect of Macquarie's operation that has led them to that success. You've got to take your hat off to them. Yeah, I need to, I need to look into that, <laughs> what they're doing. We've been on this journey in terms of the core software and now building the data layer and we're well into that process. Open banking will just give us a huge tailwind. The next layer of the cake is automation and you can't deliver automation unless you have the logic, the core software and the data. We struggle to attract capital And midway through the journey, at least from beginning to this point, it became very clear that we were going to struggle to attract capital. And without capital, we were going, well, how are we going to deliver a realistic alternative for the practitioner segment of the community? And if we can't deliver them a realistic alternative, how are you going to make the commercial model stack up? Even though trustees are larger by number in, in terms of users, they were always going to be much smaller in terms of the number of funds, just the nature of the structure of the industry. And so we were faced with this real dilemma of how are we going to get this thing to a commercially feasible point? Because there was a lot of pressure from stakeholders to keep delivering on the functionality, and yet we were constrained as to our access to capital. Anyway, we managed to push through the period, to everyone's credit. But what has become apparent in the last six to 12 months is two things. Being late to the party The delays that we experience because of the lack of access to capital is about to turn into this massive tailwind because instead of us having to go to 100 banks as the incumbents did and build direct integrations one by one by one at enormous cost, you're going to have standardization, open banking, delivering access to that transactional data pretty much for free. Obviously, the government has mandated that the data will be freely available and the standardization will just drive down the costs. And obviously, McLeod has a highly decentralized, very strong development team that will eat those APIs for breakfast. They'll just knock them over one by one. And I look forward to that happening. But probably of more importance is that two or three years ago, most people, and certainly not myself, could not envision or envisage the impact of artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, and, and I, even a few months ago, I could not have articulated this because I just couldn't get my head around what that meant for McLeod. We were just head down, ass up, delivering each day as best we could. And it's only been in the last few months that I've been able to step back and sort of survey the landscape, thinking about open banking or thinking about artificial intelligence. And you very quickly realise the implications, the profound implications of merging or fusing open banking with artificial intelligence. I said in the previous conversation that, you know, you can rent machine learning computers from Amazon for four cents an hour and get them to do thousands of man years of work for basically nothing. And so if you have the data and you have the computing power, the machine learning capabilities to do data matching then what you end up with literally within 12 to 18 months, not two and a half years as I was envisaging, is automation. 
the automation that took years, hundreds of man years of effort, tens of millions of dollars to deliver is just going to happen literally overnight. And so this journey that we had seen as being so arduous and the question marks that were in our heads about the veracity of what we were doing, nobody ever questioned the vision, the purpose. That's what kept us going. But the reality distortion field will only get you so far, no matter how strong your vision happens to be. And so now what everybody on the team and across the community is starting to realise is that we have the ability now in the next couple of years to deliver a platform, an ecosystem, an online community that can accommodate all 600,000 funds, reduce the licensing costs that the practitioners and that they are paying the licence fees, arguably on behalf of the, the trustees, reduce those licence fees by tens of millions of dollars a year and create all of the automation that the practitioners require, create a workflow solution for the trustees that allows them to craft a workflow for their fund that suits themselves. So if they really don't have time, they're in accumulation phase, they've got three kids, they're busy, they can go to the marketplace, they can just buy full-service admin for whatever the going rate is, or they can do as much as they like themselves, buy ad hoc admin, buy an actuarial certificate, buy an audit or whatever. But there may be some people, and I think it'll be increasingly difficult with all of the regulatory overlay, but you're going to have a situation where some people can use the core software, maybe the triennial audit proposal gets off the ground and they lodge manually, and their entire admin cost for the year will be precisely zero. And maybe they get support from the community through the community support model. Uh, a lot of that stuff is yet to transpire, but I'm, I'm just sort of creating a vision for what the next few years looks like, where you do actually have all 600,000 funds on the cloud. Everybody, trustee, practitioner, gets to use the community or participate in the community in a manner that maps to their specific requirements, their skill set, their needs. The costs come down for everybody. And all of a sudden, coming back to the point we talked about, this idea that the superannuation assets should be subjected to an ad valorem fee structure of 1%, which amounts to $23 billion apparently, you've moved to a model where the, the cost structure is 1% of income. And that won't be welcome news for everybody. I accept that. So at the moment, SMSF administration is $23 billion a year. No. So I, the, the figures that are being quoted are the industry as a whole, retail, so industry, SMSF. Aircraft. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah. the entire SMSF administration is $23 billion. No, no, no. The, the, the entire superannuation sector is generating fees of about $23 billion, which is 1% of the total asset pool of $2.3 billion. Sorry, trillion, gosh. So I think the average fees in SMSF is like 2500 that ATO quotes, 2500 a year. Those fees just seem to be coming down naturally, and I think it's partly, the, you know, the software vendors have done a very good job about automation to enable costs to come down through software automation, which is a great outcome. But I think that what they have delivered will end up looking or being a midpoint in the process. And what McLeod is about is anticipating the future and what is the end point. What is the end point in this process, not what is the midpoint. We've seen this arguably with Uber. Uber has cut the cost of a taxi ride by 50%, but now the, their competitors like Taxify and Ola are coming in at a lower price. 
And so the idea that Uber was somehow the end point in this journey, we haven't even seen driverless cars or uh, all of this other disruption. And so what McLeod has sought to do from day one is anticipate what is the end point in this process and the endpoint will constantly move further out. We will never get to the endpoint. Look, maybe maybe we don't, but McLeod as an organization wanted to be confident that if that endpoint gets shifted out, that it's actually McLeod doing the shifting, not somebody else. And I think the the problem with Uber is that having raised tens of billions of dollars at 50 or 80 billion or however much it is, it's just ridiculous amounts of money. Having done that, having created that governance structure, they then became immediately vulnerable to the next market entrant. Then they'll become vulnerable to the next one. And so when we started this journey, it was with this view that there is no point in going on the journey unless you anticipate what that end point is and you work your way backwards in terms of the governance structure because as i believe people will begin to realize that it is governance that will determine longevity not technology technology is about to become a given if everybody is using artificial intelligent computers and they cost four cents an hour technology is no longer going to be a differentiator and spend some time in stone and chalk today having a chat with somebody and i fear and suspect that most of the people in that building do not understand that deflationary context. They're raising money, they're deploying money, they're building stuff without realising that in 18 months' time somebody else is going to come along or a 15-year-old kid and they're just going to build it and they're just going to give it away for free. It's a very confronting future for many people to contemplate, but it isn't for McLeod because we contemplated it from the very, very beginning. everything is happening is the application environment where your automation takes place. Right now that has to be the focus. Because you, yeah, because you already got the governance, your capital structure, you basically are now financing yourself out of cash flow. No, look, we're not, we're not at the point of being P&L funded, but we are in a transition phase now. And basically we have access to capital when and where we need it, but we are trying to minimise the deployment of balance sheet funding. We want to accelerate the transition to P&L funding. So for instance, we're having conversations with large admin firms and saying to them, look, you could invest equity in McLeod if you chose to, as some of your peers have done. An alternative model is that you sign a multi-year licence agreement with McLeod, generate significant per unit cost savings, 70 to 90%. You then pump that money into McLeod via the P&L. We use that money to accelerate the journey of you getting off the incumbent and saving tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in licence fees. And so fortunately, that construct is starting to gain some traction. But either way, the reality is it's very much a transactional model. People are signing up for the software. They're upgrading to the pro version or the premium version. They're going to the marketplace. And so we now have more and more revenue coming in. Whether it's because you can construct some creative P&L funding model or because you can get access to balance sheet funding because you have growing revenues, the reality is that that capital constraint is really dissolving. I'd love it to dissolve faster, but I don't believe that access to capital has anything to do with the outcome anymore. It is simply a question of timing. Two or three years ago, access to capital was an existential risk to McLeod and its vision. Today, access to capital is just part of the journey. Looking at the next layer of the cake, technology infrastructure, 
that's probably what you need to build, isn't it? That has to do with automation because you can't automate if you don't have the infrastructure. No, or? no. Look, it's just AWS. You know, okay. It's, it's so just then, it's a given. Okay, so then it's basically ticked off. Ticked off. It's the ticked off. It's, it's, infrastructure AWS is looking after. So then we have the application environment that you already spoke a lot about, which is the automation. Mm -hmm. Then we have the operating model. The incumbents have dozens of developers in two of the most expensive cities in the world. McLeod doesn't have that operating model, so we haven't ended up spending as much money. Yeah, I was but, really surprised to realise that you don't have a physical office. No. it's. I live on the Mornington Peninsula outside Melbourne. Um, you know, occasionally I would actually like an office to go to because my kids sometimes drive me nuts. But it is totally impractical because I would go to the office and there would be nobody there because they're in the Philippines or Ireland or Uzbekistan or wherever. We've actually got a global team meeting coming up in a few weeks and I look forward to seeing everybody. And we do get together locally more frequently because we do have people participating in the team locally. But the reality is, is that McLeod is a purely decentralised model. We can't even engage in stone and chalk because there wouldn't be anybody to go there. We sort of moved on from that model. Again, coming back to this point about anticipating the end point, we kind of leapfrogged the stone and chalk model many, many years ago. But that's on the development side. But there are many other aspects to this that have to be anticipated. It's like support. We spoke in the last edition about how do you scale the support function to, to sustain or support hundreds of thousands of funds, thousands and thousands of users. On my watch, it isn't going to be an office with dozens of people on the call centre. It's just not going to happen. It's not scalable. It's not going to get you to 600,000 funds without a lot of pain and a lot of money. Jimmy Wales didn't build Wikipedia into the fifth most visited website on the planet by sticking everybody in an office in Manhattan and getting them to write content. He distributed it globally across hundreds of thousands of people and that is why Wikipedia is what it is with no balance sheet. And so we will apply exactly the same model to support, finance, accounting, whatever it happens to be, whatever function is required to scale, it will be decentralised. And so we already have, we have four people in Manila, we've got one, two people in Chennai and everything is online. So you've got a support query. If you can't find the answer in the user manual, we're about to publish a whole bunch of video tutorials. You'll submit a support ticket, pops up on, on the inbox in the Philippines or in India, and somebody engages with you online. That's, to me, exactly the same workflow as we use in the software development. A ticket pops up, gets assigned to somebody, they work on it, then it goes across to somebody else, then it goes across to somebody else, and then eventually it gets deployed because it's passed whatever processes, automated testing it has to pass. And so the operating model will become the next challenge for the community. It's going to emerge over the next 12 to 18 months because we're going to be getting practitioners wanting to move in numbers. And so we are not going to throw resources at that. We are going to build robotic process automation that means that they can basically take a tool inside the system, upload a thousand PDF documents for a thousand funds, press a button, and that robot just takes some machine learning algorithm, extracts all of the data, injects it into the database, spits out some exception report about this, that, and the other that it couldn't figure out, and bingo, you've moved a thousand funds and you didn't spend a cent. That, that is about, that to me is the McLeod operating model. And then when you need support, all of a sudden there's some machine learning computer that answers your question online. And if you're still not happy, then you go to an internal support function on an exception basis.
there's a shift from an economy focused on products to one centered on platforms. Mm-hmm. Uber is a, is a platform. What they focused on was connecting demand and supply. And arguably connecting demand and supply in an efficient, transparent manner, getting out of the way. Right? Governance was very important. So if you're an Uber driver and your rating falls below 4.6, you're out. But if you're going to scale that sort of model globally, you need that sort of governance structure to ensure high standards. If you're Airbnb, you have a similar challenge in terms of governance and scalability. But again, you've created this platform and you've tried to minimize your footprint by just connecting demand and supply. And so McLeod is doing something similar. Arguably, we've already done it. We've connected trustees and auditors. We've connected trustees and accounting practitioners. Now, you can buy ad hoc support in the marketplace for 20 bucks an hour. Somebody had some data entry done because they couldn't be bothered doing themselves, so they paid somebody $160 to do the data entry. That's, to me, exactly the sort of platform model that McLeod excels in. The Where we need to scale is, is there's lots of gaps in terms of third-party products that we either don't yet integrate with or you can't buy through McLeod. And so those are the sort of areas that we will need to focus on. Now, there's no audit workflow. We don't have integration. We don't have integration with FIG, RateSetter, a whole bunch of other third parties within the industry who play very important roles. And, of course, the incumbents have been doing this for many years and done it very, very well. We'll be late to that party, as we have been to every other party, but eventually we will need to deliver replication of those ecosystems in order that we can accommodate all 600,000 funds because there'll be a bunch of funds that have bonds from FIG and they don't want to move until we have FIG integration. And so who, who is FIG? FIG is a platform for bonds, oh. corporate bonds. And so the incumbent software vendors have very tight integration with players like FIG in order to extract data about particular assets. And so there'll be numerous conversations and, and integrations that will be required. But again, it'll all be squeaky wheel, you know, which is, which is the squeakiest wheel this quarter? What integration do we need to focus on? And it will all be about minimising capital and operating expenditure associated with delivering that outcome. My best estimate right now is that McLeod will cease balance sheet funding at about $1.5 million. And after that, it'll be about how efficiently in terms of operating model can we deliver all the subsequent outcomes that are required. And that over 90% less than, dare I say, a class, because class's balance sheet is publicly available information, it's 25 mil, 1.5 is 93% less or whatever. Coming back to my point about the end point, I'll be happy to see somebody deliver the outcome that McLeod is envisioning for less, but I think it's quite unlikely given the indications that the community is showing in terms of scalability. And as I said, one day we may not even charge for the software. It it, it may just not be necessary. I have no particular firm view and ultimately it might be a decision that's made by the community itself. The governance of the community, the governance of McLeod Proprietary Limited is a small blue dot in the universe of the governance of the community as a whole. An understanding of that is sort of the beginning of an understanding of why McLeod might get to 600,000 funds or however many funds there happen to be at that point in time. Welcome back. 
I like Ashley's mantra to find solutions either in the cloud or in the crowd. Cloud or crowd. I had never thought of it like that. In the next episode, episode 74, Adrian Bailey of Cleary Hall in Sydney, we'll talk about small business CGT concessions. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.